Hello and welcome. You're listening to Nature's a Hoot with Tom Marath and Hannah Shaw. It's the wildlife podcast brought to you by the Hawk Conservancy Trust. As you know, we're all about birds at the Trust, but birds don't live alone. They're part of a whole ecosystem. And so this podcast is the chance for us to take a more general look at wildlife beyond birds. And you don't need to be an expert. We've got that covered as we're joined by some of the greatest voices in conservation to tell us more about what's happening right now in the wild world around us. Mm. Coming up in this month's episode, we'll be chatting to broadcaster, marine biologist and fellow podcaster Darwood Qureshi about their work at the BBC Natural History Unit, as well as just having a general natter about a shared love of wildlife. Yes, it was great indeed to chat to Darwood. And of course, our Matter of Fact Challenge is back as well, as well as our usual catch up about what we've been up to at the Trust. And of course, sharing our love of birds of prey. Absolutely. Um, And it's that time of the year now, Hannah, isn't it? That um, spring is starting to spring itself. Have have you been up (laughs) to Reggie's Meadow up at the Trust recently? Have you seen the changes taking place? It's miraculous. It is miraculous. Spring is a wonderful thing. It is it lovely is. up at the meadow. We have the cow slips coming out, the first signs of spring in the meadow, which is beautiful. Mm. Um, some butterflies it's like a constellation around. of little tiny yellow flowers, isn't it? So at the moment? nice. It's quite luminous. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you've seen lots of butterflies. I've, I've been quite butterfly deficient so far this year. <laughs> yeah, I've seen um, some brimstones. They're the big yellowy green ones. And, oh, yeah. Nice. Um, small tortoise shell as well. Um, yeah, so a few around, which is nice. And I did have a visit actually from the butterfly um, recorder, the Hampshire recorder. So it's a guy who um, takes care of all the records of butterflies in the county. Um, and oh. we're going to hopefully, we already do submit our, some of our records. So this is something actually that the public can do as well is when you see um, a species, it, pretty much anything. Um, you can go onto an app called iRecord and you can record things that you see and you give your location as well. Usually your phone will be or have a GPS and it will give your location. So we're going to start doing that and making sure that we're really up to date with um, putting our records in so that we have a really good idea of all the species that we have at the Trust. So yeah, so I met with the butterfly guy and um, he helped me out with the best ways to do that. So that was good. Did you have a bit of a nerd out about butterflies? Yeah, a little bit. We, st- <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we got some funny looks from the people doing the experience because um, we were we started to sort of go into the bushes to look for um, eggs because there's certain eggs right. which I can't remember which species it is now, but there's certain eggs which are laid um, on blackthorn, which is the hedge, um, one of the species in the hedge that's around the meadow, and so we were it all. Oh, me him and his wife like all in the bush like looking right in this hedge to see if we could find any <laughs> any eggs we didn't find any but well, um yeah oh damn it <laughs> <laughs> um we've also actually got a couple of um kind of biodiversity based events as well haven't we coming up at the trust and i think yeah. it'll be the third time we've done biodiversity breakfast coming up in may um yeah. and i unfortunately i'm i'm plugging this but i think it's full i think we've it got is our, full. like yeah, in, intrepid um, biodiversity lovers and, and detectives are going to come with us for a morning. Yeah. We're going to Hannah and I will be here 
first thing, like bleary-eyed and worse for wear, probably, <laughs> <laughs> um, as we kind of head out into the meadow with uh, with Matt, uh, Matt Stevens, yeah. who's our UK conservation biologist, and he'll be telling us all about the wonderful uh, bird calls that we can hear first thing in the morning on a spring morning, which is, is great. Mm. And then, um, yeah, you and I kind of get involved with the some of the moths and things in the meadow, don't we? So that will be Yeah, we're going to do a moth trap, aren't we? That'll be good. I love yeah. doing a moth trap because we always get... Uh, the meadow is really diverse for moths, so we always get loads of species in there and it's really nice to see what we get and then it makes you feel a bit better about, you know, how bad things are with... <laughs> with yeah, biodiversity our generally slice is doing okay yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, um and then we've yeah, got and it's some always in, good to catch in, up with matt yeah absolutely uh, and then we've got in june we've got our bio blitz haven't we and people can kind of come along and see some of the work we're doing with the biodiversity on on site on yeah. that day exactly yeah yeah so bio blitz yeah. is is exactly what it's does what it says on the tin come in and do it when we blitz as many species as we can um and it's in a, a nice way yeah oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> not we're not just destroying in, all wildlife on site here this is uh this is blitzing try and in record as many as investigating yeah <laughs> yeah um and it's nice because it's a nationwide thing so it's nice to be part of that um to mm. contribute towards uh yeah, like the nation, the nation's wildlife, basically, and the and the wonderful biodiversity we have on site. Because I think people think, you know, we're a, we're a visitor centre with the birds, and we have our birds, and we love our birds. But we're also, it's also really important that we are contributing to biodiversity, native biodiversity. Um, yeah. Yeah, and the meadow is definitely a wonderful thing for that. Yeah, we say it right at the start of every episode, don't we? The, you know, birds don't live alone within that habitat. Yeah. And if we don't look after the other things that surround those birds, um, we haven't got a hope in hell's chance of, of looking after birds of prey. So, yeah, it's all exactly. equally as important as each other. Um, and, in fact, we've been highlighting this a little bit in a brand new part of our day. Um, and I, I think you've, you, were, you were part of the planning for it, and I think you managed to catch a little bit of it today. Uh, it's called Nifty Nest Builders, which is yeah. uh, a, f- <laughs> a fun title for actually quite a fun little part of the morning where uh, visitors can come down, learn a little bit more about the nest boxes that we provide for birds. Um, we talk about nesting birds in general. Um, and what's quite cool at the moment is we are where we do it down at the Discovery Barn. We're sandwiched between the white-backed vultures who are nesting at the moment, so you can kind of mm. see it live in front of you. And then on the other side of the Discovery Barn um, is the gymnogenes, the African harrier hawks, um, which are obviously nest raiders. They raid weaver birds' nests in the wild. Um, and oh, so yeah, we've got course. like an artificial weaver bird's nest in the aviary that we'll put pieces of food into and the birds will come in and uh, and take pieces of food from there just like they would in the wild so um, it's kind of so much going on down there and then of course especially for kids you can come along and have a go at building your own nest um, yeah it's a great bit of fun and hopefully the takeaway is you know it's not just about birds of prey it's about you know how, how things are going for all birds out in the wild on that part of the day yeah, I think it's um, it's nice to have that to link back to because birds of prey are so important, but also they're such um, amazing indicators of how well an ecosystem is doing, aren't they? Um, mm. So it's always nice to see them in the wild because you know that if there's if predators are doing well, then generally a lot of other species are probably doing well well as well. Yeah, absolutely. That that kind of apex yeah. point at which birds of prey sit. Um, so Hannah, this 
time round on our podcast. We had a, a really lovely guest. It was great, great fun um, talking to Darwood, wasn't it? Who's going to be our interviewee on this and the next podcast. We got so yeah. much wonderful, wonderful chatting in that um, we, we couldn't really cut too much of it out, to be honest. Yeah, I, I, I love that because we had such a great chat that we had so much to talk about that we've um, had to put it into two episodes, which is really nice because it's so yeah. nice to have that connection where we were chatting to them for so long. I mean, that's of no disrespect to the other guests we've had on the podcast. No. Uh, it just so happened that we went off t- off on tangents, which over yeah. the next couple of episodes, you'll you'll see that we went quite off topic a few times. Yeah. Um, I think we're, we spent quite a bit of time talking about Jurassic Park at one stage, I seem to remember. So um, you've got all that to look forward to, listeners at home. Here we go. Let's have a listen then. Um, this is when Hannah and I, a few weeks ago, uh, caught up with Darwood Qureshi. Okay, so now we are joined by Darwood Qureshi, who is a researcher at the BBC Natural History Unit and BBC Earth. And they are also a writer, journalist, activist, wildlife filmmaker and presenter. So we're really, really pleased to welcome Darwood. Hi, Darwood. How are you doing? I'm doing good, thank you. Yeah, really, really um, lovely weather recently, so I'm happy about that. Slightly unhappy that I'm working indoors a lot, so I can't go outside, but, yeah, you know, mm. <laughs> kind yeah, of everything. I know what you mean. So, um, just to get started, tell us a bit about yourself, Darwood. Um, I'd say, I guess the main thing that I always have to say about myself is that um, I'm a storyteller, um, and I guess, you know, across every kind of job that I've done, um, every job that I'm doing now and all the things that I've got in the pipeline and in the future it's all based very much around that storytelling element and that core yeah. element of trying to build a narrative and change perspectives via storytelling because I really believe that storytelling is you know it's essentially one of the it's one of the strongest means of communication that we have um, and why not use that to um, you know progress our view of wildlife progress our view of conservation and progress our view of people I think that's really you know it's such an incredible thing to be able to do and that is one of the reasons you know that I've, I've been doing things like filmmaking and journalism and um, and now being a researcher at the BBC Natural History Unit and podcasting as well like this you know I just think yeah. it's an amazing way in all sorts of mediums to get messages across to people because you know, everyone loves a good story. And I think it's Definitely. it's just really cool to be able to do that around wildlife in particular, which has been one of my one of the things that I've been most passionate about um, all my life. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, your passion really comes through. It's really nice. And all the different sort of breadth of different work that you've done, had a look at some of your, um, yeah, like you said about your past podcasts and um, your work with the Bumblebee Conservation Trust as well, mm. um, really comes through, which is really nice really nice that you you talk about everything being storytelling and certainly like from the anything that's coming out come out of the BBC Natural History Unit you know the kind of classic David Attenborough storytelling of following an animal that right at the beginning of the program mm-hmm. you've got no emotional connection with at all but you're absolutely beside yourself with worry about their you know the youngsters that they have or their survival from one season to an next it's an incredible way to get people to emotionally connect with with wildlife mm-hmm. isn't it Mm-hmm. It's, I think it's amazing. And um, just like you said, it is really, really kind of speaks of building a story. 
and building a narrative because you, as you've said you know you've got this wildlife and this animal or maybe even this environment or this issue that's to do with the environment um which at the beginning of the documentary lots and lots of people won't know about they won't really care about they've never seen it before you know they've never even heard of it before but as the kind of program goes on you build that connection with that animal and with you know with these people um and I found that mostly kind of affects me through writing. I love being able to right. tell stories through writing, being able to kind of reel people people in, build kind of imagery through writing. And I really think that's what I've wanted to do my whole life. The fact that I get to do it now and will hopefully get to do it for a very, very long time. Um, that's one of the things that kind of keeps me going is that kind of love of writing. Do you know where that kind of all began for you? Is, is there a moment in your in your past where you knew that wildlife and, and kind of telling stories about wildlife and connecting people to them was going to be the thing for you? I don't I don't think I remember a specific moment because it really did start quite young. Um, and I think, you know, for a lot of people, everyone talks about starting off young. They talk about starting off in, I don't know, growing up on a farm or growing up in fields yeah. and just learning about nature around them. And it just very organically being, you know, just kind of inter interjected into their lives. But with me, I think where it started was very kind of different to a lot of people, um, especially a lot of people that talk about nature and conservation as much as I do. I think um, so where I started off was in um in like the center of london in a flat above a shop you know there's no garden no reserves nothing like that um and no green spaces that were immediately accessible to me um, and to my family so it's just very strange sometimes to people that i've you know i've got this kind of love of nature and wildlife from that and i think for me it definitely started with the smaller animals it started with the bees and the butterflies and the pollinators um and kind of the insects and lots and lots of plant species. These were lots of things that I would go around um, and I would look at, um, especially in kind of the environment where I lived in, you know, in the kind of cityscape, you find a lot of these animals just kind of hiding under stones and rocks and things. And it was really, really cool to get to grips with that smaller kind of undergrowth um, landscape. And that's where it started. And then, you know, that grew my love for British wildlife and British conservation. And I'm still very much an advocate for urban wildlife um, I think, you know, it's paramount that we get that to um, to kind of be a very, very talked about topic, which is urban wildlife and the awareness around that. But my love of international wildlife and conservation and bigger kind of species and animals definitely came from watching stacks upon stacks of David Attenborough documentaries, you know, and loads and loads of Spring Watch, just tons and tons of wildlife programs, which I think to me has really spoken about the love and the also the importance of wildlife film and media, because I think a lot of people don't give wildlife film and media its due course in terms of how important it actually is in getting people on board with conservation topics. Um, because for me, it really did, it really did pull me in. And whilst I didn't see the representation that I needed, I still got inspired and I still wanted to do what they were doing. And, you know, and marry that up with kind of the London kind of atmosphere and the wildlife that exists there and that practicality of understanding insects and um, small birds and that sort of thing. And you just, yeah, I guess that's kind of where it started. It's just a very much a mixture of different things in terms of like the age that I started. I don't think, you know, I don't think it was a particular age. It was just kind of, it just did kind of meld in eventually with looking at lots of encyclopedias and wildlife picture books and, you know, all of these different things kind of came together to create that real like interest that I have. Yeah, it's, it's sometimes difficult, isn't it, to think back at 
a moment where things changed. And I think perhaps it's the same for you as it as it is for me, that it's hard to think of a time that's BDA, either before mm-hmm. David Attenborough in my head. <laughs> yeah. He's just always been there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and seems to have like just everyone I speak to just seems to be so inspired by that, like you said, that sort of storytelling. Mm-hmm. almost no matter what the background really which is you know like you say it doesn't really get the um, attention it deserves for that I suppose mm-hmm. yeah I think I completely agree as well and that was definitely for me growing up definitely like watching documentaries was why I was got obsessed with all the big animals like elephants and lions and things like that and it really like you make a really good point that it's totally underrated and ha- its importance the media mm-hmm. um for people to sort of spark that passion when they're younger because you can't like when you're that young it's it's I mean for a lot of people it's not feasible to go and see these animals Mm. in the wild or even in the zoo for some people so Mm. you know it's it's definitely underrated and how important that is yeah not just young people either like no exactly everybody or most people have access to to watch these sorts of programs (laughs) and you know if you've never seen anything out in the wild, at least you're getting yeah. some sort of level of information. I did kind of wonder whether your uh, love of wildlife, almost because there was not a lot of it, it kind of made the stuff that you did see maybe even more exciting than than it would be for someone who did grow up on a farm and just saw yeah. it all the time. And it was kind of just bog standard. Oh yeah, look, there's a fox or look, there's a badger. Boring. I, I- I often get that I think I think very much so when I moved from kind of London to a more like suburby area um, in Buckinghamshire and managed to kind of get to grips with like badgers and foxes and everything I just get so so excited yeah especially I remember this one kind of um, regular thing that I used to do which is I used to literally go to the bottom of the garden um, and wait till it got really dark because there was a badger set in the next garden and the mother and pups would come out um, at, at night and you couldn't really see them you could see very very little of like but you could hear them and they were so loud and in the morning obviously you see the snuffle holes you know you see see the little the, the port the um the kind of the tracks everywhere you see the ripped up grass um, and you see all of these different signs and you're just like I don't know for me that was just so so exciting but I think you're right it very much was a fact that because I grew up without that kind of thing yeah every time I see it it just really really excites me and it just makes me so happy to see that kind of wildlife um and it didn't normalize it for me Mm. that being said I feel like it never has been normalized because even after a while of seeing all of these animals all the time you know I've seen bees forever since I was very very young but every time I see a bee I'm still like oh my god look (laughs) oh my god a bee oh that you know that's that species that does this this and that thing and you know it's really, really, it's just, for me, I don't think the euphoria ever goes away. And it's something that kept bringing me back, especially in times when I thought I wouldn't be in this industry anymore. It's something that always keeps bringing me back to nature and wildlife is, it's just pure euphoria. You know, even if you were to cut it back to the basics of what it is that excites me about wildlife, it's just, it's just that it is exciting. So now you're um, a researcher at the BBC Natural History Unit. That is, that sounds so exciting. We'd love to hear a bit more about your work there. Yeah, it's really, really cool, actually. Um, I don't know why I said actually, because I think you guys said that everyone, <laughs> everyone who's kind of a nature nerd is like natural history and it, you know, it's super exciting anyway. But um, for me, obviously, you know, if I'd grown up with David Attenborough as my main source of kind of inspiration for nature and wildlife, I do distinctly remember as a kid refusing to watch other 
nature yeah, presenters yeah. because they didn't sound like David Attenborough <laughs> and, and just being really upset because I was like this doesn't sound right this is wrong um now obviously I've come to agree that actually it's much better if we have a lot of different diversity but um in terms of him being that you know that core inspiration it was really amazing so growing up with that kind of you know BBC documentary wildlife um aspect and also spring watch and everything going into this job it's really surreal it's very mm -hmm. surreal because you know you walk into the building and you see pictures of you know di different documentaries everywhere you see kind of like posters with various people and awards and that sort of thing just kind of scattered around and it's it's just really surreal and it's it's amazing because so for my job as a researcher I basically get to look at wildlife and environmental related things for my job you know all day <laughs> and that's amazing to me and it's astounding and it is you know sometimes it's tiring you know if you're working on um some project and it takes ages and you're up there till like eight when you should have finished at like 5 30 okay it's it's tiring but it's very very rewarding mm -hmm. and I often have to tell myself even when I am kind of exhausted that there are people I know who don't like their jobs and I really love my job oh, that's and right. it's you know it's it's absolutely incredible that I get to do that alongside the other things that I do and you know in terms of talking about wildlife and talking about nature and even talking about issues like race and intersectionality mm. and um all these other issues you know with identity and sexuality all of these other issues that I get to tie into it I get to do that and still you know work at the BBC Natural History Unit which is a place that I've idolized for so long and I get to research wildlife you know the other day I was literally talking to my friend and I'm like oh what did you do today and I was like oh well I spent the entire day looking at different types of octopus um, <laughs> and where they live and what adaptations various versions of various species have to exist in different parts of the ocean and that's amazing to me you know that's like really incredible that I get to do that and I think that it is that kind of passion which keeps driving you towards jobs like this because it it does require a sense of I'm interested in this otherwise I'd be here for ages just looking at tons and tons of an ant that looks slightly different from this other ant but is actually completely different in terms of where it lives you know there's lots of lots of varying things that would probably make someone who wasn't as insane about wildlife go insane so it's it's I think it's pretty cool it definitely sounds cool absolutely and uh, what was your what was your journey to get there because obviously it's as you say it's like quite a coveted role really isn't it something that <laughs> lots and lots of nature nerds would love to yeah. do how did you end up there um so I think so I did um a degree in marine biology at university and that's kind of you know I kind of married up my love of bugs and insects with um with the ocean and sort of when actually I do want to study whales and dolphins I want to learn about their intelligence their communication what the links are between um that kind of communication and intelligence in general and I thought that's a really cool topic to learn about so I want to do that um I didn't end up studying that in the end but I got a real sense of you know how important the the ocean is which I knew about before but it is really it's really kind of understanding through that degree how the ocean is the lungs of our planet you know I got that kind of sense of that and I think doing that and then alongside that doing my journalism where I am also my writing of my blog which I've done ever since I was like um, 12 and just writing about kind of observations that I found in the garden and kind of nature around that and it's it's morphed together with the journalism into this kind of place where I put all my articles and I put all my kind of bits of information and so I guess my journey is that 
that science and that love of science and that love of understanding because I think you know science really is about the art of questions it's the art of understanding that's what you get from science and then you kind of I kind of took this writing element which is where I'm basically trying to be, be very emotive through the things that I'm writing me very descriptive and when I kind of displayed that um, and also combine that with being online and talking way too much about Spring Watch on Twitter um, and Instagram. That's kind of the journey that's led me to this because then I then, um, so I applied to various jobs at the BBC um, and didn't get a few of them um, and went through, you know, certain interviews and different stages of talking to various people and eventually getting this role um, and the role that I have now because it's different than the one I started with was just kind of it it said to me how very important it is to have lots of different things that you're interested in and lots of different things that you're working at because I think that's what got me the job I don't think I very much yeah I very much don't think it was the degree that got me the job mm. which you know it, it might be a bit upsetting to a lot of people to hear that you just get a science degree and you get to work in wildlife and conservation but I don't think you do you know there's so many people in wildlife and conservation especially in wildlife and conservation and natural history media that don't, you know, haven't done a STEM degree. They haven't done an ology degree. Um, and so it's not really about that. It's about that kind of that, it's about that storytelling. It's about mm. that ability that you have to express yourself through writing and through any sort of narrative um, that I think has got me to this place. And it's been quite a weird sort of twisty kind of journey in terms of like even doing volunteering for reserves and things like that that's it's all kind of led me to this place where I'm like you know this is quite a cool job to be in and even now I'm thinking still thinking about things I want to do and it's mm. it is kind of you know it's a stop on the way I think it's not a kind of place where I just want to sit down now and, and just be mm. here forever but it is you know it's a good place um, I think to stop on the way. Um, so you spoke that uh, when you were growing up that you we're kind of focus on some of the smaller animals, maybe some of the invertebrates and uh, and insects that you are living around. Um, I've seen you on your social media platforms talk quite a lot about bumblebees, and you are uh, an ambassador for the Bumblebee Conservation Trust. What mm. does your work with them entail? So, yeah, this is such a this is a topic I could go on for hours and hours talking about. Please, <laughs> please do. Love, yeah, <laughs> love pollinators, love bumblebees. Um, yeah, I think. So as an ambassador for the Bumblebee Conservation Trust, I'm basically someone who helps share awareness about issues that, you know, pertain to bumblebees, to pollinators, and also to their wider environment. Because obviously, you know, you have this base organism, which is the bumblebee. You have this, these base organisms, which are pollinators, which aren't just base organisms for ecosystems and environments of simply wildlife. They, you know, they prop up our infrastructure, they prop up our economies. And it's really incredible to learn about how many things they help us do and how much we really do rely on them. So that is kind of one of the jobs that I have. Um, if there's a topic that needs raising awareness to, or if there's a project or a program that the Bumblebee Conservation Trust are doing, um, as one of the ambassadors, what we will do is basically share it across our socials, maybe talk about it, um, maybe do seminars, um, maybe go on. So I've gone on a few radio programs, um, one of them was Bees in a Pod, which Rob Beckett did on Radio 4, which is a really um, cool way of looking at pollinators and bumblebees in particular. And 
as an ambassador for the Bumblebee Conservation Trust, I got to go on there and basically go, oh, I love bumblebees, blah, blah, blah. You know, I love bumblebees. <laughs> this is how much I love them. And I also related to some of the experiences I've had in nature. And I think being an ambassador for them, one, it allows me to talk all day long about one of my most favorite insects on the planet, but it also really allows me to transport lots of other views that I have on other things through this vehicle of bumblebee conservation, which a lot of people, you know, it's even in terms of wildlife conservation, I think bumblebee conservation kind of stands alone almost. Um, and it kind of, I think, you know, it's very much shown by the fact that the bumblebee conservation trust is pretty much, pretty much the only known bumblebee conservation trust um, in terms of the work that it does around bumblebees and awareness of pollinators and, and that sort of thing. So, I think as an ambassador, I get to do that and I get to be able to share these ideas. And I also get to um, hopefully um, do more work on this, but work with them in terms of conservation projects around bumblebees. Because again, like I've said, you know, they are an essential part of our ecosystems, infrastructure and economies, and they are unfortunately in danger. So I think for me, being able to do all of these things and also use that for my benefit in terms of the storytelling and in terms of propping up the science of it all, because I've learned a lot of things through being an ambassador. I've had to learn about a lot of different projects. Um, for example, there was a really, really cool project, um, which was to do with the reintroduction of the shorthead bumblebee. And, you know, this is a really powerful kind of story because it is a story of a species of bumblebee that has gone extinct in the UK. And this was a whole kind of project that linked together farmers, landowners, scientists, everyone, and also talked about a lot of different other pollinators and a lot of different insects. Um, and it was really cool to learn about that and to learn about the biology of these insects and to also learn about conservation policy and conservation methods. And I think people don't really understand that if you're an ambassador, you're still kind of learning about all of these kinds of things. And I like that a big aspect of this kind of job um, I say job because it is a voluntary job, but, you know, it, of this job is to learn about things as well as teaching about them. Mm. I bet that can be quite intimidating as well to be sometimes a, a figurehead of an organisation whilst you're still learning what the scientists within that organisation are kind of yeah. coming up with as as you're telling about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, it can often be, I think it's also intimidating sometimes because um, in terms of the views that I have, um, I need to, I think for me as a person, if I'm kind of, even, even in terms of being at the BBC and in terms of writing for various places, I need to be as authentic as possible mm. in terms of what I'm talking about. So if I am talking about an environmental issue, I, I can't be talking about that environmental issue and be representing an organization that doesn't have the best interests of that wildlife environment or people at heart. And so for mm. me, it's been a bit of a struggle sometimes to accept, um, certain jobs or roles or positions in companies or organizations that I'm not 100% sure sometimes about what they're doing with that information. And so I haven't done that. But the good thing about the Bumblebee Conservation Trust is, um, you know, I've had, I've, I've had conservations, I've had conversation. <laughs> I knew that it's eventually conservation I knew, on the brain. <laughs> I, say those, I say those two words so much and they've never got mixed up and this is the first time. Um, I, I've had conversations with, um, you know, their CEO. I've been able to talk through them um, about different processes and it's all been very transparent so I think yeah it is intimidating especially like you said mm. when you're still learning about things and someone's like oh what does this mean and I'm like actually I don't know and I don't think anyone knows yet. You said about you mentioned um, earlier a bit about representation and 
Um, I've, I was also thinking about how a lot of your storytelling work is really inspiring for young people and you, you can reach a lot of different audiences. Um, so with that in mind, um, your work with a focus on nature, what's, what's that about? This was a really kind of interesting thing. Um, so a focus on nature is a youth led nature organization, um, been around like way longer than me and um, started off by, um, I don't know if you know, Stephen Moss and Lucy McRobert, you know, in the, yeah. for anyone that doesn't know, broadcasters, authors in the nature and conservation industry, really, really amazing people. And so when I was about, probably about 14, I think I got involved with the organization as kind of a member. And I noticed that it was the only organization for me that I could see that dealt with youth and nature. And it really worked to bring youth together in nature and young people and to tell them that there are loads of different types of jobs that you could get and you can still mm. be involved with wildlife and conservation and that means that you know the skills that you have already that's fine you don't need to go on these you know long expensive courses to gain all of these different skills the skills that you've got already these are really cool and we can use those um, especially to you know progress conservation and I saw that and I thought that was that was really awesome and so I joined that conservation um, industry through that I guess and I had a few conversations and it kind of I don't know it kind of whittled out because I wasn't feeling very represented anyway because of the fact that I you know as a person of color I really felt that I wasn't really represented in any way in nature and conservation media and that had caused me to kind of float away from the world of wildlife for a bit and try and reevaluate what it was that I really liked about wildlife and whether or not it was important enough to keep me there even in the face of feeling uncomfortable in those environments. And then later on, when I kind of, when I'd started to reestablish myself as more of a kind of wildlife person, I guess, and talk more about wildlife and conservation and be interested in it more and write more articles, I wrote an article for them, which was called um, A Small Brown Elephant, which is basically about my journey in conservation and nature and about the representation that I felt I didn't have and about kind of the obstacles that I faced and the fact that I really felt displaced in an environment that before given me so much comfort and so much security. And that was where I went to feel safe. And now it was making me feel very unsafe. And so I wrote about that and that was really kind of, that went, that went well with a lot of people. And a lot of people kind of messaged back and said, oh, this was amazing. You know, this is really cool. We've never really seen or never really understood that people of color felt so uncomfortable in the natural world when in fact it should be everyone's world and off the back of that um i started talking to some of the committee members of the focus on nature and um was kind of directed through through them but also other kind of social media avenues to the job of engagement officer at a focus on nature and so engagement officer basically your job is to help engage people and you know communities with the natural world and if it was kind of in this organization, then it's to engage younger people of different ages, um, younger people of different kind of stages in their life um, and also different environments and areas and also different upbringings with nature and conservation and try to help them to understand that there are lots of jobs available in this sector, but also to help them understand that we do need to work together to make these, you know, higher paying, better, you know, better standard jobs um, jobs that actually help people and progress their lives as well as you know helping them to understand and enjoy nature and 
after getting that job, that's basically what I've been doing is basically I've been working on with the organization to put together career packs to help basically put together ideas, um, bring in mentors and things like that. There are other people on the team who do way more work on this than I do. Um, but yeah, to basically do all that kind of stuff is to basically, it's to bring together a lot of different resources for younger people so that they can then access those and use them to progress their careers in the wildlife and conservation sectors. Because oftentimes I think, you know, we, we've all got that skill set. We've all got a lot of skills that we can use. We just don't really have any tools to use those skills in, um, in terms of, you know, where you're working or who you're working for. And so what this does is it, it does that. It gives resources, it gives contacts, it gives mentors, and hopefully we'll be launching that very soon, actually. So um, that whole kind of resource pack, as it were, and the, the kind of the things that are related to that should be launched very soon. So more updates on that um, very soon That's from excellent. a focus on nature. So you're talking about obviously yes. talking to young people and that's sometimes quite different from talking to adults in the, the science community uh, already. Um, I managed to find a, a, a clip, a CBeebies episode. <laughs> um, is it uh, Teeny Tiny Creatures? It Were is, you involved yes. in that? Yeah. And I have to say, although it was like aimed at obviously quite young children, I learned a heck of a lot about starfish watching that episode. Yeah. So, it's not always kind of talking down to young people yeah. or to children, is it? It's sometimes actually essentially just giving them the information and letting them see what's what's what. But it, it looked like quite a, a, a fun episode. And I it was... never heard of uh, the the chocolate chip. Oh, yeah. uh, what is it? The chocolate chip starfish? The chocolate is that chip right? starfish. Yeah. 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 <laughs> was it, was, it was very, very fun to do. And, you know, like you said, I think... That happens a lot of the time and that used to happen to me a lot um, especially when I was at like, university doing marine biology and I was watching things like octonauts and just kind of <laughs> you know I was like I didn't know that and I study that like that's crazy that it's I think <laughs> it's very much you know and, and this is something I think that is gotten right a lot of the time especially with kids programs around nature and conservation you know things like Deadly 60 um, a lot of shows that are kind of they're directed towards kids there's a lot of good information in there and it's presented mm. really well so that kids will really, really learn, mm. you know, amazing things. I, I remember growing up with, you know, Steve Irwin and Steve Backshaw and Eddie 60 and everything. And I learned so much of my wildlife and conservation and nature knowledge from these programs. Um, and it's, it's really cool to see that. And I think it's, it's really amazing that I got to be able to do that. But yeah, it was, it was very, very fun. Um, it was very, again, it was another surreal experience where I was kind of going, into the space where there were cameras kind of pointing at me and um, kind of working with um, the amazing presenter, um, Chantelle, that um, you know, was there to talk about these animals that I really, really love. And we were kind of talking about them and we have like, we'd have like basic conversations about the fact that, oh, the, you know, this, this is a starfish and this, which is a brittle star, it's not starfish. And apparently they're not called starfish anymore. They're called sea stars. And, you know, it's <laughs> a lot of different, interesting. Mm. I have a point to make about that, to be honest. I'm like, well, if you can't call starfish, starfish, then why can we call seahorses, seahorses? They're not, oh. they're not, they're not horses. This happens yeah. all the time though, doesn't it? <laughs> of renaming <laughs> things in nature just to confuse us, I think. Ridiculous, yeah. And I, I just, yeah, I got yeah. a bit confused about that, but no, they're sea stars now, apparently. Right. Um, but, 
yeah, it was very, it was very amazing to be able to convey that passion, but in a way that I knew kids would be watching and see that not only, and not only learn about starfish, but also see kind of me talking about it. Mm. And that was very important. And it only really became mm. very important when I thought about it afterwards, because I, I did the whole, um, the, the whole kind of program, filmed it and then went back home and a few kind of days afterwards, I got thinking to myself and I thought, oh my God, there's not been any trans people of color who've ever done that. Mm. And that was really kind of overwhelming to me. One, yeah. it was a bit sad because, you know, that's a bit, that's quite sad that I'm the only one who's done it. But also it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of euphoric to see that that is happening more. And I could have never imagined seeing someone like that. Like yeah. me, I mean, on TV talking about starfish of all things, you know, yeah. it's, it's it's kind of ridiculous, but in a really cool way. So it's Darwood Qureshi there, and uh, there's lots, lots more where that came from. But um, chocolate chip starfish, Hannah, did you know? Do you know about that one? <laughs> had you heard of that already? That was I had. I'd only blind, heard of blindsided it. me. I'd only heard of it because I saw Darwood on. Um, I watched the Sea Babies, which was great. Um, but no, before that, I'd never heard of the chocolate chip no. starfish. Well, we were saying, weren't we, how um, kids are like sometimes the best audience because they are just so open-minded and, and everything's fascinating, isn't it? Nothing, everything's they're new. They're not jaded. They're not jaded by anything. Everything's fascinating. No. Um, and also, you can learn like that. You can learn so much from kids' programs because although it's simplified. Like some of the stuff, like about the chocolate, <laughs> chocolate chip starfish, is brilliant. Like I would have never known that yeah. if I hadn't watched CBBS. I mean, to be honest, simplified is right at my level. Like that's what yeah. I like. I don't, I, I don't want to watch something and be made to feel like I should have done the homework first. No. I want to sit there and just kind of absorb normally, yeah, and that's absolutely. what those programs can be really, really good for, can't they? Yeah, yeah. And I have to say, a little bit jealous of um, Darwood's Darwood's position there at the. Or getting to just look at the, you know, look at fascinating stuff all day to research for the BBC Natural History Unit. Like, that's Absolutely. Great. I mean, we, we do regularly <laughs> say, that especially if, um, I guess, working with the birds directly each day, it's like the best job in the world at, at, at the trustee or at the visitor centre. But um, yeah, yeah. I mean, working for the BBC Natural History Unit is a bit of a bit of an every Suckler. naturalist dream, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Following in the footsteps of the of the big man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you know, I was watching his... Uh, they, they recoloured, or, or they managed to find some um, footage that was shot on colour film of ZooQuest, um, which... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like his first phrase. That was when he like, was why, really why. young. Yeah, and was like... I never knew that... I mean, I, I read his book um, uh, all about like the ZooQuest years. Yeah. Um, we're going off on a tangent here again, but I'm going to say because it it's about David Attenborough. Um that he he was never planned to be a wildlife presenter. He was like the mm. director of ZooQuest. So he would kind of oh. be there behind the camera, up in the gallery of the studio. Mm. And uh, and his friend who was the, I think he was the curator of reptiles at London Zoo at the time, his, his job was to be the presenter. And unfortunately he fell ill and they kind of went, oh, David, you've got to do it because there's no one else. And then just by chance it begun, you know, and it, and it seemed oh, that wow. way for... You know, like um, uh, Darwood was saying about having that kind of breadth of knowledge and just true passion had got them to the position that they were in. That seems to be 
quite commonplace, doesn't it? That it's not just about having the degree. It's not just about having the, you know, you've done six pla- six weeks at X number of places. It's yeah. actually just about having that breadth of experience and, and sometimes just being in the right place at the right time. But yeah. Yeah. It's all right. about knocking on doors as well. You just got, you have to bug people. You do. If you really want to work somewhere, you really want to do something. You have to really, really annoy people in conservation, I think. Yeah. And come ready to make cups of tea. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I learned. Okay. Okay. So I think we should move on to our matter of fact challenge, Tom. So this pitches you and me against one another to come up with the best fact in the chosen category. It absolutely does. Um, last time, we have to reveal the results of last time because we did um, most impressive migration last time. And uh, I have to say, I won with my swallow yeah, uh, by a landslide, I think. Well, I say by a landslide. I think it was something like 70-30 split um, yeah. across our platform. So, um, I mean, uh, to be fair, the swallow is a, a favourite in many people's hearts. So it's kind of unsurprising yeah. that that one had a little soft spot from, from most of the people voting. But uh, yeah, I've kind of, it's 1-0, it's I think, for series. Oh no, hang on. What episode are we on? This is episode three. What was our first one? But we didn't do one in the first one, did we? Wait, hang on. So we did March. Did we do a January? We, d- we did do a January. Yeah, but I don't think we did a matter of fact challenge. At this point in time for this series, series three of Nature's a Hoot, I am one nil up. Um, so there's all still to play for and there's plenty of time, Hannah, for you to overtake <clears> me. Um, so kind of do your worst. Um, shall we do it? Yeah, let's go for it. Okay, so this month's Matter of Fact Challenge is... Best Pollinator... Um, Hannah, do you want to go first with your your best pollinator? I don't know if I want to go first. I feel like okay, I'll go first. Um, so hopefully, we have a difficult picked, position. Hopefully, we haven't picked the same one. We might have done. What happens then? Um, well, I'll go first. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I might have I might have a backup, but I might have to do a, a very quick bit of um, research yeah, to we'll remind work myself out. of what I was reading. But um, yeah, go for it. It's, so mine is, um, it's not a bee, it's not a bird, it's not an insect of any kind, in fact, it's a mammal, um, and apparently it's the world's biggest pollinator, although I feel like that's up for debate because I, I reckon there's other mammals that also pollinate, but this particular mm. one um, is an important pollinator of the traveller's tree, traveller's palm in Madagascar. Um, and it's the black and white ruffed lemur. And they are the main pollinator of the traveller's trees or traveller's palm. The lemurs feed on the fruit, <laughs> the fruit of the tree. So they mainly eat fruit, this, these lemurs. But they also um, stick their snouts inside the flowers. So presumably to eat the nectar. And then mm. they get all the pollen on their face and yeah, on their fur. And then they're transported to the next flower. And, and then they're quite um they are quite furry lemurs, aren't they? I know that's a silly thing to say, but they're they're really fluffy. They're furry, yeah. They're very furry. They're, they're not they're not like a smooth coat. <laughs> they're 
kind of uh, big fl- are they are they the largest lemur? Uh mm, I don't know, you're testing me. <laughs> I feel like they're they the, might the be. biggest lemur. They're pretty big. I mean if um, this God. If this was a different category and we were talking about the biggest lemur. Oh no. No, it's not. No, for, forget me. What's That's the biggest the, um, the Indri? Oh no. Indri I'm gonna say that wrong. There's gonna be somebody who works with um lemurs who's gonna ring in and say, Your nature's a hoot people. I've not got a clue about Idiots. lemurs. <laughs> Idiots. But that's the biggest uh lemur. Obviously, Madagascan species, uh, known to grow as tall as three feet, what the and injury? weigh as much as ten pounds. Yeah, the injury. So, you're, but you were talking the black and white rough lemur, weren't you? Black and white roughed lemur, and uh, uh, according to my sources, they're the only pollinator of that tree. So, yeah, that's my pollinator oh. anyway. I've gone on and on. So that we're supposed to have so like ten seconds, aren't we? <laughs> oh, we did. Yeah, we we threw the timer out way long. That was so serious too. <laughs> okay well it's it's a pretty good one um certainly got the cute factor i suppose the lemur is much cuter yeah. than mine uh, because i am kind of going easy i suppose with uh having a having a mini beast having a, an insect um, which is what springs to mind when we talk about pollinators but not the one you might expect everybody has a great deal of love for the bee and of course they should but i'm going to suggest the wasp Controversial choice, the plague of anybody's summer picnic. But they are also pollinators, as well as having a whole host of other uh, uses within the biodiverse, uh, within the ecosystems that they are a part of. Um, so they're kind of hungry, hungry mini beasts, and they're always in search of kind of high energy rewards for their food, mm. and particularly the adult wasps, um, because of course they're they're not going to live that long sadly um and yeah. so really having um a kind of a well-rounded diet is not particularly important to them it's just about having this this high energy food consumption hence wasps tend to eat things like fallen fruit and then they get drunk throughout the rest of the year and then eventually of course <laughs> they die and that's when they get really angry but of course during the earlier part of the year when they're flying around and trying to find pollen from trees and other plants mm. um Although the pollen doesn't stick quite so easily to them as it does something like a bumblebee, they are still these important pollinators going from one plant to the next and pollinating them. Um, and there's some species of wasps uh, from around the world that are a little bit like your black and white rough re- lemur um, that are completely relied upon to keep that species alive. Mm. Um, so uh, some wasps in the wild have a special relationship with wild fig plants which apparently is a partnership that they've had for around 60 million years. Oh, I um, know this, The fig spiel. plant need... Do you? You know this already. Um, the well, plants need to be pollinated by fig wasps. Um, yeah. And they're, in turn, the wasps have evolved to live on they're the tiny, inside tiny, tiny. of the figs. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've kind of been quite general, I suppose, with the, my exact wasp species. I've kind of gone from a... No, I like um, it. A, ...a genus of, uh, of, of animal here. Um but yeah, imagine to having to have having evolved to live yeah. inside a fig plant that completely relies on you, and then exclusively yeah. feeding on the fig plant. I, yeah, that they're self, they're reliant on one another, aren't they? Yeah, fascinating. I learned about that. Um, so that's one of the standard um, things to talk about when you take people on safari, like when you talk about the fig trees, really, and stuff. So when I did my guide, I've 
done guide training when I first lived in South Africa. And that's one of the things that you can talk about, talk to your guests about, because if you're not seeing any lions and elephants, the fig wasp relationship is quite fascinating. Ah, we are seeing behind the curtain of African safaris <laughs> yeah. here, aren't we? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you know, again, with my events manager hat on, we do something here called the African Sunset Safari, where obviously things are slightly orchestrated so that you might just so happen to see some wonderful African birds of prey whilst you're on safari mm. here at the Trust. Um, but yeah, I guess if the birds are not fancy and coming out to, yeah, to fly, I might just whip that things. one out in the, uh, <laughs> in the summer. <laughs> That's great. That's okay, so you're not, you're not surprised by my, um, my choice, but... Are you are you afraid? Well, I feel like it might be the underdog that you've got there because mm, although true. people don't really like wasps, they are important. I think it's important for us to highlight. And I, I don't want to um, say wasps are bad because they're not, because they no. are really important. So, yeah, maybe you've got an underdog there. Yeah. Um, I think also important to note that they, they provide a great service in terms of being these scavengers as well, don't they? They do eat quite mm. a lot of... Uh, meat um, which people don't realise and they do eat quite a lot of uh, other insects that are potentially problems for farmers and this is not just yeah. bolstering my uh, matter of fact challenge bid here but um, <laughs> like you say very important to uh, champion a wasp because they're yeah. so often so often you hear people saying what's the point of a wasp I get bees no. and bees are friendly and everyone loves bees but what's the point of a wasp and there you go two reasons they're a pollinator and they're a scavenger Really important predator, and yes, scavenger, like you said. Okay, so it's up to you, wherever and however you're listening to Nature's a Hoot, to vote for which fact you think best fits the bill of best pollinator. Yeah, to vote, you can head over to our Instagram stories or our Twitter feed, both at Hawk Conservancy. We will, of course, reveal the winner of this episode's Matter of Fact Challenge next time okay well that's it for our may episode a reminder to subscribe to nature's who wherever you get your podcasts and if you're feeling generous do give us a review too because it really helps us to get our message out to the wider world and of course in turn helps to support the work we do conserving birds of prey and their habitats Absolutely. And maybe come and visit us as well. Over the coming months, the birds are going to be flying at their best. And we've got a couple of new things into the timetable this year as well. So there's lots to do and there's something for everyone. Uh, thanks for visiting. And we'll be back with you in July for more from Darwood and from all of us, of course, here at the Hawk Conservancy Trust. But for now, it's goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.